are listening to Ideas on Trapped with Toby Lawson. This is the Ideas on Trapped podcast, and my guest today is currently the CEO of Southbridge Group, a pan-African financial services firm focused on investment banking and sovereign advisory. He's also the former CEO of African Finance Corporation. Please welcome Andrew Ali. Thank you very much, Toby. I'm going to ask you a bit of a nerdy question first. In all your years as an investor and your participation and management of investing across multiple countries, have you observed the so-called Lucas paradox and are the conjectures around it correct? Yeah, what's the Lucas paradox? (laughs) So it's this idea by Robert Lucas that Low-income countries offers a lot more returns in terms of capital investment, but the paradox is that capital always flows to high-income countries where the return is a bit lower, and the paradox is why that is. So as an investor, what has your experience been around that? Uh, Yeah, I would agree with that. I've heard that paradox before, but didn't uh, know it was referred to as the Lucas paradox. The fact is that investors are not looking to maximize their returns. They're looking to maximize their risk-adjusted returns. And, you know, different investors have different levels of risk tolerance. So, for example, when I worked at the IFC, we actually wouldn't do a deal this was for loans. Maybe I wouldn't say we wouldn't do a deal, but we'd be seriously put off from doing a deal if the pricing model indicated that, you know, this loan should be priced at above a certain level. I won't mention the level. And, you know, this is for senior loans, which are supposed to be relatively low risk. And the whole point being that for something that's a loan, you really shouldn't be taking this level of risk. And if you have to price it at more than a certain level, then you should be looking at some other instruments, maybe some form of equity or quasi-equity, you know, rather than doing it as a senior loan because the risk-reward parameters for the level of risk that that organization was willing to take were out of whack for that particular investment. So I, I think this is one of these paradoxes that is really only a paradox because of a false assumption, which is that people actually want to maximize their return regardless of the risk level. The fact is that, and you know, this is something I've also said in the past, that you know, when people are boasting about their countries and the high rates of return that you can make or that investors make in those countries, what it really talks about is more the level of risk in that country than how great your country is as an environment for investment. So let me give you an example. Let's say that on average, equity investments in a country return 20%. It doesn't mean that that country doesn't have investments that return 12%, but it means that investors are choosing not to make those investments because they see the risk of your country as being too high for a 12% return to be worth their while and worth taking the risk uh, of your country. Um, Yeah, so for me, I've seen that. I mean, you know, there's far more capital flowing into developed countries and into emerging markets. 
But that's really because the investors and, you know, you can argue whether they're right or wrong in their perceptions, but the risk perceptions of the investors and the owners of that capital is such that they don't want to take the risks that they see in emerging markets, albeit that, you know, maybe the expected returns would be higher. One of the things I also think about is the DFI model, say the traditional private institutional capital model of financing and its relation to fiscal discipline and general macroeconomic management. Like how do DFIs view risk vis-a-vis the economic environment of a particular country? Are they more risk tolerant? Do they identify opportunities that would normally seem adverse to regular conventional private capital? Well, again, if you take the sort of theoretical underpinnings of what DFIs are supposed to do, you can then argue whether they really do this in practice or not. But what DFIs are supposed to do is to actually be on the margin of where private investors will choose not to invest. And the reason is that they are supposed to really, as it were, crowd in or mobilize funding from the private sector. And they can do this by extending the umbrella of some of the benefits that they have, which is the case with, say, an IFC. Or they can do this by, you know, just essentially their reputation for structuring deals and risk managing and, you know, being able to choose good deals ab initio, you know, which is probably the model of some of, say, the European DFIs, which don't enjoy all the privileges and immunities that an IFC would enjoy. But, you know, they're not supposed to be uh, way beyond where the private sector would invest in terms of their risk tolerance. This goes beyond just the macroeconomic uh, factors, but also into the sort of specific risks around either the industry or the specific company that you know one is considering for an investment. The tension here, obviously, is that, you know, the whole raison d'etre of DFIs is to sort of invest in places that the private sector isn't investing in and is in some ways to tackle a market failure. Market failure meaning that really the private sector should be investing here, but, you know, for failure of the market, they're not investing there. And the real trick is getting how far away you as a DFI are willing to move from, let's say, the conventional investor in trying to achieve, you know, that objective. So if we look at, say, a crisis situation like the pandemic that the global economy is still reeling from after a little over a year, and we look at DFIs, do you think they have a bigger role to play in a crisis situation where conventional lines of credits become unavailable to businesses. For example, in Nigeria, there was a lot of discussion last year about DFIs stepping in to provide credit to SMEs or things like that. So is there an expanded role that you think DFIs can play in extraordinary circumstances beyond just investing at the margins or stepping in in a case of market failure? We can say a crisis is a kind of market failure to me in a way. Well, exactly the point. So just to clarify, uh, when I say DFI, just to be clear, um, 
what I've been referring to have been the sort of private sector investment DFI. So the likes of IFC, AFC, FMO from the Netherlands, DEG from Germany, Propaco. I haven't been talking about, you know, the multilaterals that support sovereigns like the IMF and the World Bank. So just, yeah. just to be clear on that. And I think that the DFIs do have a role to play. And in times of crisis, actually, uh, there tends to be a market failure because what tends to happen is that the market tends to go into a sort of risk off mode and withdraws from emerging markets or developing markets very strongly without really maybe considering the specific nuances of the uh, investments. And just to give you an example, I mean, if you take the pandemic, Africa is actually the region or one of the regions that, albeit, yes, its growth rate last year was affected, um, its growth rate was affected far less than many other regions. And I, I want to say it's actually the least affected region in the world. But I don't have that data, so I won't say that. But if it's not the least affected, it's sort of definitely one of the least affected. So at least theoretically, it shouldn't be the most affected in terms of the reversal of flows in investment. But, you know, at least at the height of the pandemic, this was the case. And therefore, it sort of, again, makes some theoretical sense for DFIs to step in at that point in time. Of course, in reality, especially last year, a lot of the DFIs were concerned about, you know, their individual portfolio investments and were, at least in the early part of the pandemic, were focused more on portfolio management and helping their portfolio companies rather than moving into new investments. Of course, that has started changing now. And you will see, I think, um, you know, more aggressive DFI involvement in these markets as a precursor to private sector. Now, there is one factor that does affect this balance in, let's call it a positive way, which is that the massive stimulus that has been given in the West, especially in the U.S., obviously drives liquidity. And part of that stimulus, obviously, directly or indirectly has been very low interest rates. So that drives not only liquidity, but also a hunt for yield, which then manifests itself into, you know, greater demand for at least certain assets in developing countries. And if you look at what has happened recently, for example, uh, late last year, FBN issued a euro bond. And that euro bond was priced at, I think, 8.6% roughly. Earlier this year, I think after the $1.5 trillion U.S. stimulus, Echo Bank Nigeria issued a euro bond and they were able to price that, you know, with a seven in front of the interest rate. So I think they saved about 1% compared with FBN. Now, you know, that is probably driven as much by market forces in the investors as much as it is by sort of, you know, a difference in terms of the credit quality of those names. Okay. There was a recent World Bank study using IFC data that compared the returns of impact investment versus traditional investment over a 30-year period. And the headline finding was that impact investment outperformed traditional private investment over the set period. And some have argued that it's actually a result that should 
mean an expanded role for impact investment typically undertaken by DFIs in an economy. Though my own interpretation of the result is that DFIs are playing their role as you have explained them well and not necessarily meaning that that model should be expanded. What's your take? My take is really the health warning that is put on most investment products in the West, which is something along the lines of, you know, past performance doesn't guarantee future results. You know, it's hard to make a specific comment about this survey, especially as I don't know exactly what has gone into it. But I would say that, um, you know, there are a couple of things. So a number of the themes that fall under impact investing have become fashionable lately. So, you know, particularly carbon and um, renewables and things like that. And so pricing has gone up quite dramatically recently. And, you know, we saw this when I was in AFC where the returns on renewable products, um, projects, sorry, renewable power projects were falling. A few years before I left the AFC, we were able to do wind farm project in a certain West African country with a return close to 20% per annum IRR. That has been falling considerably and it's not exactly comparing like with like, but there's something called the refit program in South Africa where today in dollar terms, if you're an investor investing in that, you can expect to get less than a 10% return in dollar terms. So what this implies, obviously, is that over this period, the pricing of those kind of projects has gone up. Um, As you know, when yields go down, pricing goes up. And therefore, if you had been lucky enough to invest in these things five, 10 years ago, your returns today would be looking, you know, really very good. But that kind of yield compression cannot go on forever. So that is one explanation that could explain why these returns have looked so good over the last few years compared with more traditional investments. But there's also an explanation that would say why this may not happen in the future. Um, Of course, that's just one explanation, and it's, it's more like a hypothesis. And the conclusion that impact investment is better, quote unquote, than non-impact investment and does make better returns could also be a valid hypothesis as well. I mean, I I think we don't really know. Um, To me personally, I think that impact investment is important, but it's also a term that I think is used very vaguely and which covers a very wide spectrum of different things. And so therefore, in some ways, is not a very helpful term because, you know, it it doesn't really allow for very strong differentiation between, you know, what is impact and what isn't impact. And a lot of those lines get very blurred. I mean, I see many people, many investments where some people who are investing are impact funds and others who are investing are not impact funds. And, you know, is that an impact investment or not? So in some ways, I'm not sure that it's a very helpful thing to look at impact investment generally. I think it's much more helpful to look at, you know, what the outcomes you're trying to achieve are. So, you know, if you're looking at renewables and climate financing, that I think is something that you can study compared to other types of energy, for example. And I do think, for example, that there's a very huge opportunity in climate financing. I mean, We are in this carbon or energy transition phase and where there is a a massive transition like this, 
there are huge potential opportunities. Exactly what those opportunities are, I think, will only be known with 2020 hindsight in 30, 50 years' time. But for those who are smart enough to see those opportunities, I think there's a lot of money to be made. Uh, on the other hand, I think that you know fossil fuels is a dying industry. It doesn't mean that you can't make money in it, and one doesn't know how long it will take for that industry to die. And again, you know, smart people will make money from it. Um, other people will lose their shirt by getting those questions wrong. So as far as DFIs go, I think DFIs, like a lot of impact investors, are mission-driven as much as they are return-driven. And therefore, their investments are not solely to generate a return, but to have an outcome as well. And, you know, I mean, I think that that's a very legitimate set of objectives for people to pursue if they want to do that. But, you know, I'm not sure that everybody is necessarily in that same boat. One of the things you've also done over your career is oversee a lot of infrastructure investment. So I want to talk about PPP. So if we look at countries like Nigeria with huge infrastructure deficit, there's always a lot of argument for letting private capital step in and provide cheap public goods, roads, rail, power projects and the like. And the usual examples are always countries like China, its investment in road infrastructure, rail networks and all that. And <laughs> China obviously is doing this from a position of good leverage, huge external reserve, a strong economy. So are all countries equally positioned? <laughs> Sounds like a weird question. But are all countries equally positioned to take advantage of PPP? And looking specifically at the case of Nigeria, what are we missing? What are the nuances? Because the discourse currently is one directional. Oh, let's let private capital come in and do this and do that. Let you spend your fund, you know. So what's your take? Um, my take is the following one. I'm not sure that um, China has really done this around using PPPs. I think it's been a lot more states funded than in many other places. But I think that this is also driven by the, you know, extremely high savings rate that exists in China a lot of which gets channeled into financing the government. China's savings rate to GDP, especially during their hyper growth phase, was well north of 50%. I think today it's around 50%. Nigeria's is 17%. So that gives China a lot more scope to carry out different models using a domestic kind of financing. Nigeria, with its low savings to GDP ratio, is much more dependent on offshore financing, which means that the level of financing that can be supported, or the level of investment, sorry, that can be supported by the government is limited by, if you're taking a sort of government-led financing, is limited by the ability of the government to borrow, which is finite. I mean, we can discuss how much that is and how much more they have to go, especially given current debt service uh, to income ratios. But, you know, it's clear that there's some upper limit on that. Um, I don't think anybody, or I don't think there are many people who advocate that the financing model should be done in one direction and that, you know, for example, it should only be done 
by the government or that it should only be done by the private sector. And certainly, although I'm a very strong advocate of private sector participation in infrastructure, I do, for example, recognize that there are certain things that the private sector just simply cannot do and probably should not do, even though they could be highly productive. So, for example, rural roads. Uh, It's been shown that if you can reduce the time it takes for people in rural areas to get to the next market town, it dramatically improves all kinds of things like, you know, educational achievement, poverty reduction, etc. But there's no way that a rural road is going to be financed, you know, using a PPP structure. On the other hand, things like airports are very suited to private sector investment. And it's always perplexed me why we haven't sort of privatized in some way. And I use that term privatized in some way because they're different models, more of our airports. I mean, we do have MM2 in Lagos, which is a private sector owned and operated terminal. But, you know, none of the others are. And the expansion in the international airports in Lagos, in Abuja, has been largely government financed, as far as I'm aware. And, you know, that's, um, I wonder why, because it seems unnecessary. And of course, you know, I mean, the point about this is that where a government has limited resources, it should be seeking to have others finance things that they are willing to do and use its own limited capacity to do things that the private sector can't do and or that will have a bigger impact. So, you know, I think things like basic education, are things that should be financed by the government. Rural roads is another one I mentioned before. So if you dive a little bit deeper into this, I think one of the problems that we see with a lot of PPP type of structures is that is around the sort of pricing. So if you take the power sector, for example, you know, since its privatization, the power sector has never been able to charge a proper cost recovering tariff. So whatever the other forces or, you know, areas that you can blame or mistakes or people who have messed up in that sector, there's no way it's going to be viable if it can't charge a cost recovering tariff. And, you know, there are many examples of this where, and not just in Nigeria, where you're trying to do something in the private sector, but the tariff simply isn't enough to support it. And again, from a theoretical point of view, that's maybe not totally a deal breaker because, of course, the government can step in and subsidize between where the tariff is and where the tariff should be. But then you're sort of defeating the purpose of a number of these things, which is to really take it off the balance sheet of the government entirely. So to sort of answer your question in a bit more general terms, I think that everybody's looking for a panacea that's going to solve all our problems, a silver bullet, as it were. But sadly, there aren't silver bullets. They're just lead bullets. And, you know, those lead bullets, they have different uses in different circumstances. And you have to work harder to make sure that they have an effect. So, you know, PPPs have their place, but PPPs are not the be all and end all of developing infrastructure as neither are any of the other models, but some sort of mixture between all of them. Mm. Speaking specifically about power, in my, I would say, limited judgment, I think the heuristic with which the government works is that poor people and 
we know Nigeria has a large number of poor people, should not be exposed to market prices, maybe out of welfare considerations. But if we really want to reform this sector and want it to be attractive to investments, like you said, then the returns have to be attractive for people that are going to put money and invest in that sector. And that comes with charging for what, at the very least, recovers your cost. So, but what I really want to push you on is what really should move first? Because we really seem to be at a perpetual impasse where the government says, oh, you're not allowed to pass on the cost of your inefficiencies to the consumer and investors on the other side who are pouring money into this sector are getting frustrated every day because of the regulatory shackles around prices and a lot of things. So which should move first, really? Uh, Again, you know, like most things in life, I don't think there's one answer to this. But I do believe that if you want to have a sustainable power sector, then you should make it sustainable. And, you know, that means having the proper tariffs uh, in place. And, you know, I think that there are all kinds of arguments back and forth, which I don't want to get into now as to, you know, who is at fault and who is to blame and who should be reducing the inefficiencies in the system, etc., But, you know, I will say that on the one hand, the government did not fulfill the promises that it made to the people who bought these assets. Those promises were made at the time those assets were being sold. On the other hand, you know, I think that a number of the people who came in didn't have all the kind of capabilities that maybe they should have had. You know, that is the tension that is there. But I think that the process was flawed, which is why the more capable people didn't participate in in the process. And it depended on, you know, the government fulfilling a lot of promises, which, to be frank, they didn't fulfill. And therefore, I guess the people who chose not to come in were ultimately justified in making that choice. But to go back to your question, here's the way I think it should be done. You know, first of all, I'm not a kind of, you know, whatever the word is, market forces fanatic and i do believe that it does make sense in certain circumstances to provide subsidies but my belief is that if you want to do that you know what you should do is allow the power sector to charge whatever prices are necessary for it to become sustainable and then you know the people who can't afford it and who you think should be able to afford it then give them a direct subsidy so they can pay the market price for the power. That way, the power market is allowed to take off and is allowed to develop in a proper, sustainable way. But you, the government, are giving people the subsidies so they can participate in that market as uh, market players. Again, there are many arguments, but you can go back and say that the reason why the telecom sector was able to take off and Today, telecom services are accessible without any subsidies to most of the population, including large segments of the population who are in poverty, is because initially there wasn't that price interference. They were allowed to get off to a good start and a good sustainable start. And eventually the prices came down to the point where they're able to offer services to, I wouldn't say everybody in Nigeria, because there are people, I guess, who are too poor 
still to pay for those services, but that is a very small proportion of the population, given the numbers of people who do have access to telecom services. In the case of telecoms, the inefficiencies at the beginning were essentially a lack of scale, not necessarily the losses and things that you face in the power sector, but there were inefficiencies. And de facto, the telecom companies were allowed to price those inefficiencies into what they were charging. And then that allowed them to generate the cash flows that allowed them to roll out the network and effectively to tackle those inefficiencies. You know, that's the only way it could have happened. And by luck or good judgment, that's what happened. My own personal advocacy on the power sector is, is similar. I mean, you know, allow the power sector to charge what it needs to become viable, because today it's not viable. Allow it to charge what it needs to become viable. Those people that you feel are priced out of that market, give them a direct subsidy so they can participate in it. And that mm-hmm. way you're not killing the market, but you're giving people access. It's interesting the analogy with telecoms. And I understand the role of captive customers and not having so many price distortion in the system. But I want you to comment on the role of competition in all of this because, I mean, with telecoms, we had Econet, we had MTN, we're doing per minute billing, and Glow came on board doing per second billing. And we know that a market is healthier with competition. So how can the power sector be more competitive? I mean, should there just be multiple players who can sell to as many willing consumers as they want? Well, I think it depends on how you look at competition. And your question is looking at competition in a very narrow sense. But today there is competition from other directions. So, for example, virtually every business in Nigeria has its own power supply. That is competition to what is available on the grid. And, you know, to be honest, people are voting with their feet. I mean, I'm talking about companies that are voting with their feet in terms of how they generate their own power. And I mean, for companies, and I think this is something that is neglected in discussions around this, companies are looking not just at the cost per kilowatt hour, but also the reliability. Once upon a time, I was told by a guy who operates a textile plants or who operated textile plants that if the power went off, it took them three days to reset their machinery. Uh, there's also a, I mean, I think it's closed now, but I visited again a glass factory in Port Harcourt, which, you know, couldn't afford for the power to go off for, you know, even five minutes because the glass would solidify in the machines and that would be the end of the factory. So for people like this, 99.99% uptime is probably more important than paying the absolute lowest price for power. The reason I say this is that, you know, competition isn't just based on for this segment, at least, isn't necessarily just based on price per kilowatt hour, but also other things like availability, reliability, predictability, etc. And, you know, they choose to power their businesses by, quote unquote, more expensive diesel, for example, because it provides some of those other benefits. But even with a sort of more sustainable power sector, you know, people can choose to power themselves with gas, with diesel, with solar. When it comes to individuals, again, you know, you can nowadays there's solar, which is a competitor. You know, you can go and buy a face me, I face you generator. 
you know, that's a competitor to the grid. So if the grid gets too expensive, people will just not sign on or will, will use other things. I mean, just as an aside, I think that the way power is delivered is changing or the paradigm under which power is delivered is changing because of technology. So a hundred years ago, when the concept of a grid was, you know, when that concept was come up with, typically, you know, you needed like a huge coal powered station to get any kind of economies of scale. And the economies of scale you got going from, let's, I'm just making these numbers up, but let's say 100 megawatts to 1,000 megawatts, or even two or 3,000 megawatts in a coal-powered station 100 years ago were huge. And they more than offset the costs of the transmission and distribution that came with having a big national grid. Nowadays, with technology, whether it's gas turbine technology, whether it's solar technology, Uh, whether it's more efficient gas engine type of technology, whether it's uh, mini LNG, compressed natural gas, you know, all these kind of new technologies, essentially reducing the economies of scale in generating power. I mean, nowadays, when you, for example, when you have a 500 megawatt power station, that's typically driven by four or five turbines of, you know, 100 megawatts each. And, you know, you get some economies of scale from sharing the kind of, you know, civil works and all that. But the economies of scale from going from 100 to 500 are nowhere close to what they were 100 years ago. So the whole concept of the national grid, which we are stuck in, is perhaps not as advantageous as people used to think or as it used to be several decades ago. It's not to say that the grid is not more efficient. It can be. But that gap in efficiency is declining as technology improves and I guess will continue to decline. So the whole sort of model that we need to have a big national grid as a way of delivering power, I think that whole paradigm is actually sort of dying. And therefore, the concept of the you know natural monopoly is also dying with it. If you come to the UK, for example, I can choose who I want to buy my power from, even though I have the same wires coming into my house. So there is a way of even having competition on a grid. But I think that in a place like Nigeria, the competition is coming from many of these off-grid alternative technologies. I also think that, you know, again, maybe for political reasons, it's it's more difficult. But um, I think going into sort of smaller regional grids, uh, which are more integrated, is probably a better approach than trying to operate one national grid in Nigeria even today. But like I said, you know, for political reasons, that may not be acceptable because it may mean that, you know, one region is sort of advantaged over another region. I'd like to come back to that, but let me draw you into some development macro a bit. There's a school of thoughts that thinks that the reason why some African countries are poor is because we sort of deindustrialized too early. That is, services grew really fast than industries at a very premature level on per capita income basis. And that how to correct that is to do 
manufacturing and industrialize all over again. And that idea certainly is gaining traction in terms of advocacy for industrial policy here and there. And we've seen Nigeria take a stab at that with the CBM policy, but we seem to be doing import substitution industrialization that has been tried in the 50s and the 60s in Asia, Latin America, and even in Africa that didn't work. What, in your view, is responsible for the persistence of this bad idea, in my view? Uh, well, I can't say why people have these ideas. I agree with you. I think the whole paradigm around industrialization is just one that I don't agree with. And, you know, there's a famous saying from Wayne Gretzky, who is one of the sort of most famous and best ice hockey players. I think someone asked him, how was he so good? And he said, well, look, you know, I don't, for those who are not familiar with ice hockey, the equivalent of a ball in football is called the puck. And he said that, look, you know, I don't go to where the puck is now. I go to where I anticipate the puck to be when I get there. And, you know, that's kind of how it was always there to make the right shot. Now, back in the sort of post-World War II era, when many of the current sort of Asian success stories, or, or even um, post-World War II, meaning even into the 60s or even into the 70s and 80s in the case of China. But back then, when you looked at how manufacturing happened, it was still quite labor intensive. And therefore, there was a competitive advantage to be had by essentially substituting expensive Western labor for cheap Asian labor. And this is how many of the Asian manufacturing industries were able to start. Of course, once they started, then they were able to move up the sort of value add ladder to bring the development that they have today. Um, the problem is that, and you know, I, I can't and won't comment on whether we deindustrialize too early or not. I mean, you know, I think that's all in the past. But looking into the future, I think that that window to develop through manufacturing, you know, things like toys, like steel, like cars, you know, a lot of the things that we tend to focus on today, I think that window has closed or is closing, and it's closing for two reasons. First of all, the Asian economies that have developed through manufacturing now own that manufacturing. So if we are going to produce cars in Nigeria, we are going to have to essentially displace the Asians, you know, the Toyotas, the Chinese guys, Geely and Co., from their current positions as leading car manufacturers. And, you know, what is the competitive advantage that we are going to bring in doing that? Because their labor, maybe it's sort of not as cheap as it used to be, but it's still cheaper than Western labor. So, in effect, when the Asians developed through their manufacturing, they were displacing expensive Western labor. For us to do the same thing, we have to displace not quite so expensive Asian labor, right? And can we really do that? And then when you add the second point that I'm just about to make, I think it becomes more difficult. And that point is that technology is changing such that for many of these things, labor is being displaced entirely through automation, through robotics, through smart manufacturing. 
And that's why you're seeing that there's, I mean, it's not a huge thing, but it's, it's happening. So-called reshoring where manufacturing is being moved back into, say, the U.S., which is, you know, a high cost labor area, because nowadays manufacturing requires less labor. And therefore, whether your labor is high cost or low cost is less of a factor. So from my perspective, you know, trying to replicate what the Asian guys did between, say, 1960 and 19, well, whenever you want to cut it off, 1990, just to choose two arbitrary dates, uh, is probably not possible today. And we should be looking at, you know, what are the industries of the future and how do we establish some sort of competitive advantage in some or all of these industries? I mean, to take cars, for example, you know, why are we trying to even manufacture combustion engine cars, which are, if you look at it on a long term basis, on their way out? And why aren't we trying to get involved in some aspect of the value chain of electric cars, which seem to be the new thing of the future? Again, this is probably not not really relevant for Nigeria because I don't think we produce lithium. But we talk about all our mineral resources. So, you know, if you have lithium, why not sort of try and develop that into a battery industry, which can then serve the coming thing rather than looking at how we can, you know, make the equivalent of uh, Toyota Land Cruiser or something in Oweri or in Abiyakuta which even if it's successful is is going to become obsolete in the next you know 20 30 years which is really the time frame you should be looking at if you want to develop these kind of industries you know the industries of the future are going to be very knowledge based so why aren't we encouraging our people to you know develop that knowledge and to sell that knowledge why aren't we looking at accelerating the infrastructure that will allow us to do that? So that that's my own view on industrialization. You know, I mean, I, again, you know, I'm not some sort of doctrinaire libertarian. I'm not against us having an industrial policy, but I just think our industrial policy is wrong because we're sort of too backward looking. I mean, maybe when Ajaokuta was conceived as a steel plant, it made sense to produce steel. But even if you get Ajakuta up and running today, you know, what does that really do for us in terms of developing our economy and moving it forward? I don't think it does very much. Judging by your Twitter feed, which is my primary window of observing you publicly, you're almost apolitical. So this question is, is going to be weird, but I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Uh, if you look at the debate around the country right now, what are your thoughts on some of the things that's been going on? Without naming any particular person or group, we are talking about restructuring, decentralization, constitutional reforms, and all that. What are your thoughts about all this? How do we approach this coherently and avoiding the worst? scenario? So um, I think, sadly, in Nigeria, we tend to be, and, you know, I mean, I think this is a general human phenomenon, so it's not just uh, just us, but in Nigeria, we tend to be very driven by emotion and very not driven by data, facts, and history. And then the second thing I observe 
is that we are always looking, and again, I guess this is a human thing, but um, I see it particularly in Nigeria. We're always looking for the silver bullet and the shortcut or the miracle answer. This may be either in our sort of choice of politicians or are looking for, you know, the simple solution that's going to solve all our problems, whatever that may be. And uh, I see this in many of the debates. I think that in a multi-ethnic, highly diverse country like Nigeria, it does make sense to have a degree of decentralization. I mean, you have people in Nigeria who range from, uh, you know, people who believe in literally in Sharia law through to people who are extremely liberal and would seem to be on the cutting edge of sort of, uh, you know, liberal lifestyles, you know, even in, in a Western place. You have people who believe in, you know, economic systems ranging from communism through to libertarianism. And then, you know, of course, you have all the different ethnic groups who are, you know, frankly, I personally believe that ethnicity is overplayed in, in Nigeria. But, you know, people like to cling on to that. And, you know, then you have people in different stages of economic development who have access to different resources. And, you know, very importantly, for many of the reasons I've already cited, there's also a huge trust deficit amongst people. So, you know, there is some argument, I think a strong argument for a kind of, you know, decentralized way of operating that will give people more kind of freedom and more direct access to the people who are, you know, ruling them and making their decisions. But, you know, and I I guess that in some ways that is the argument around what people are saying on restructuring. So as I've always said, personally, I'm not opposed to restructuring in principle, uh, but there are a number of questions that I don't see the answers to in what people say. So first of all, you know, what does restructuring actually really mean? Specifically, restructuring can mean anything from breaking the country up a la Yugoslavia through to a more economic type of restructuring through to sort of changing our political arrangements. So what does that mean? Secondly, um, the fact is that restructuring itself is not a panacea. And, you know, I often use the term that Nigeria is a fractal country. And what do I mean by that? Well, a fractal is something whose pattern gets repeated no matter how much you magnify it. So if you look at it from a thousand meters up, it has a pattern. If you come down to a hundred meters, it has a similar pattern. If you come down to 10 meters, it has a pattern, one meter, 10 centimeters, etc. And, you know, what I mean by this is that when you look at Nigeria, you start with the north and the south and you say, oh, you know, they're very different, different religion, different stages of development, etc. But, you know, when you zone into the north, you find that actually within the north, there are differences in religion, differences in development, differences in beliefs, etc. So, you know, if you take the north, you can then split it up into different parts. And, you know, if you take each of those parts and you dive in, you get a similar type of thing. And, you know, so 
at some point, if you want to say, okay, we, we want to try and get some degree of homogeneity, you have to go to very small units to get that. And this is partly due to our history. If you look at our history, you know, and I'm using the North as an example, but the same applies to the South. You know, historically, there were many kingdoms which were sort of brought together in the early 1800s, so not that long ago, by Usman Damfudio and the uh, Sokoto uh, Caliphate. But those kingdoms were never sort of part of one very homogeneous entity. The, the caliphate itself was almost like some sort of federation. And, you know, there were parts of what is today the north that either weren't ever part of the caliphate or were very kind of tenuous parts of the caliphate, etc. And the same, as I said, applies to the south. So one is, you know, what do you mean? Two, because of this heterogeneity that I've talked about, merely sort of reshuffling the cards in the deck in a different way isn't going to solve our problems. You also need to think about how to tackle many of the underlying causes of the problems. So, you know, how do we increase productivity of people? Because again, a lot of these arguments, not all of them, but a lot of them are really about splitting economic benefits. Now, if we could improve the productivity of our citizens, then there would be less need to fight over a limited and maybe finite amount of resources. I'm talking about oil resources principally today, although it's been other resources in the past. So one question is, what do you mean by restructuring? The second question is, even if you settle on what you mean by restructuring, how do you get there? And how do you get there with, again, if you look at most of the times in the world where there's been some sort of restructuring, particularly geopolitical restructuring. Um, so, you know, Sudan splitting off South Sudan, Yugoslavia breaking up, the partition of India, Indonesia and South Timor, all of these instances. And I'm sure there are others that showed the opposite. But, you know, many of these instances involve a huge amount of bloodshed and violence. And how do you get to, you know, your new geopolitical entity, especially if restructuring means, as I said, rejigging the sort of geopolitics of what is today Nigeria? If it's a pure economic thing, then that may be easier. But again, this is why I say that people need to be more clear about what they mean by restructuring. So, so, so the first one is, what is it? The second is, how do you achieve it? And then the third thing is really, what does it do for you? And again, this goes back to what I was saying about people looking for silver bullets. You know, restructuring isn't going to do the work because if you restructure in such a way that, let's say, we go back to the regional structure that we had when we attained independence, even within those regions, each of those regions, there was tension between people within those regions. Um, you know, how do you share the resources of the region? Same question, how do you share the resources of the regions? Who's making decisions for us, etc. So, you know, all the underlying work still has to be done. And one thing I fear is that a lot of the people who are advocating restructuring as the answer seem to feel that, well, we restructure and then everything will kind of work. But that's not the case. And what that means to me is that a lot of that work that we could be doing or that we would have to be doing post-restructuring 
we could be doing that work now. And I assure you that if you take all the examples that I cited, you know, the one that I think broke up relatively uh, smoothly was the former Czechoslovakia into the Czech Republic and Slovakia today. And at least one of the reasons why that was the smoothest and had the least bloodshed was that Czechoslovakia was, I think, the most developed um, country in that sort of Balkan, former Soviet Union region, where people were sort of, you know, more productive, more confident in themselves, better educated, and basically more confident about their future. They were able to split up in a much more kind of mature way and sort of, you know, try and find their place within the new polity. The other example I can cite on that is Brexit, where, again, because Britain or the UK is a developed country, is rich, people are productive, the rest of Europe is the same, you know, they can agree to split up. They have their differences, but those differences don't result in in bloodshed. You know, worst case scenario, there's some sort of political rhetoric being thrown and, you know, they may go to some court or something to resolve their differences. But, you know, it's not going to result in bloodshed because things like where they are economically, things like where their citizens are in terms of their productivity, things like the wealth that they have to buffer buffer any shocks, things like the maturity of their political systems, they're all there already. And, you know, these are things that we can work at and we should be working at today, even if we believe that restructuring is the sort of ultimate answer. Uh, because uh, I just take up around political maturity. The worst places politically are the local government areas. And any kind of restructuring, those local government areas will still exist. You know, so, so there's no reason why we need to wait for any kind of restructuring before we start trying to improve the capacity in our local government areas, whether that's the political management, the financial management, the economic management, etc., But, you know, I don't see that there are any real major attempts to do things like this because, you know, a lot of people are waiting for this sort of silver bullet of restructuring to to happen. Again, I want to emphasize that I am not saying that, you know, the way Nigeria is currently configured is necessarily the best or the optimal way. But that I think that people who think that reconfiguring it is the answer without doing a lot of the hard work that needs to be done, whether the country is reconfigured or not, are probably um, making a mistake. Mm, That's interesting. I I particularly like your fractal analogy. Maybe we should start electing leaders who understand Benoit Amandu, bro. Two, Two final questions before I let you go. What is the one idea you are most excited about right now and that you would like to see spread everywhere? So. I tend to believe in the Lindy effect, which is that ideas that have persisted for a long time have persisted because they're great ideas and that, you know, the longer they persist, probably the better they are as an idea. So I keep on saying that, and I do believe this, that for Nigeria, I don't believe there's a silver bullet. I think, you know, there's a lot of work we have to do and uh, sadly a lot of kind of pain and sacrifice that we need to make in order to get to where we want to be. And that is unavoidable. And, you know, 
in my view anyway, the more we try and avoid it, like sort of maybe um, treating cancer or something, the worse it gets and the harder it gets to sort it out later on. So for me, I think the closest, and this is maybe not answering the question you thought you were asking, but to me, I think the closest to a silver bullet that we can have in Nigeria is education. And I mean this in the broadest sense. So not just university education. In fact, I think that that's probably in many ways the lowest priority, but sort of the more basic forms of education, primary education, secondary education, and then also vocational education. And to me, vocational education nowadays is not just around, you know, how can you be a bricklayer or how can you be a tailor or how can you lay tiles or paint walls or whatever. It's also about how can you set up a website? How can you record a podcast on Skype, etc. as well? But I think that, you know, we need to focus on that because really, at the end of the day, I think a lot of our problems come from having a very low productivity economy. And by improving our productivity, we can start to solve a lot of our problems. And I believe that education is the one thing that can help us do that. Sadly, it takes a long time for the effects to happen. If you talk about primary education, anything that you do in primary education today is probably going to take 10, 20 years to start showing up. But as the famous saying goes, you know, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The next best time to plant the tree is now. So, you know, I think that that's something that to me is the one idea, if there is one idea that I would push to move Nigeria forward. So finally, what are the habits of mind, so to speak, that has kept you intellectually fresh because sometimes your Twitter feed can almost pass for that of a Gen Z. So what do you read? Books, blogs, or the things that you binge watch? What are the things you do? Well, I think that there are two or three things. I mean, one is that I was lucky in that my early education and my early areas of interest were in science. And therefore, I am a full subscriber to the scientific method, which many people misunderstand. But essentially, I think, you know, if I'm going to try and summarize it in a sentence, is that no facts, quote unquote, are mutable. Things just uh, are true until, you know, someone comes up with a better theory to explain uh, more things. So for me, I think that nothing is really set in stone. And that also then helps me to have the second thing, which I believe is a degree of intellectual curiosity. And again, my essentially first 10 years of education were in Nigeria, which is not known for inculcating, especially in that period, uh, which was not known for inculcating intellectual curiosity. It was more around rote learning and uh, believing, you know, or swallowing everything you were told. So I'm not quite sure where this came from, but I do have an intellectual curiosity 
which sort of drives me to learn new things, look at new pieces of information, etc. I'm not going to answer this by quoting any specific blogs or I read or books I watch or what have you, because to be honest, I'm not really an advocate of saying, oh, you know, you need to do X, Y or Z. But but I think that, you know, having a degree of intellectual curiosity, having a need to learn new things and sort of following that up is very helpful because, you know, the one constant in the world is change. And I think that people who don't, you know, change become fossils and ossify. And again, if you take some of the things we were talking about even earlier in this conversation, Many of the policies that we pursue today in Nigeria are things that may have made sense back in the 1970s, but I don't think make sense today. But, you know, for whatever reason, we haven't sort of demonstrated the intellectual curiosity to go back and sort of reconsider those things and and think about new things. I think the one thing I do, uh, which I will say, is that every so often I ask myself, you know, what have I changed my mind about recently? And this can be anything from certain things I believe around coronavirus, the way I look at things economically, to the way I look at things politically. Because I think that nobody is right on everything all the time, especially given the fact that things are changing. So even if you were right on everything at a given moment in time, it doesn't mean you're correct on everything now. So, you know, if you're not changing your mind, if your opinions are not changing, If your views are not changing, then the fault is with you. I think the other thing I would say that is important and that I I see too little of in Nigeria, again, amongst individuals and as a group, is what is called the sort of internal versus external locus of control. So for me, I try and look at, you know, what is it that I can affect? What is it that I can do to improve my situation, to change what I'm doing? I'm not, I try not to focus on the external exogenous things over which I have no control. So you can say, oh, I came into the office late because the traffic in Lagos is bad, but you know the traffic in Lagos is going to be bad. So what can you do to make sure you get into the office on time, given the traffic in Lagos? And, you know, that is within your control. So do you wake up earlier? Do you move somewhere else? Do you change job? Do you change the, the time you're supposed to get into the office? You know, there are many levers that you can push, but just to say, oh, you know, I can't come into the office on time because the traffic is unpredictable. I think is really displaying the sort of external locus of control, whereas I'm looking at the, sorry, I think I got it wrong when I was when I was saying it earlier, but you know, I'm looking at the, the internal locus of control. What can I do to affect my environment and to affect my own outcomes? Um, and I think too often in Nigeria, we just sort of, you know, we're too fatalistic about it. You know, we're like, oh, well, you know, I can't get into the office, traffic or you know, all these countries are conspiring against us, so we can't improve ourselves economically or whatever it is. And and to me, I think it's not that those factors aren't there. It's not that those factors aren't, you know, affecting us. But it doesn't mean that that's the end of the story and there's nothing you can do about it. So I think that those are two things that I try and do. So it's, it's really being intellectually open and 
trying to think about what it is that I can do, what effects I can have to make a change in the outcomes. Thank you very much, Andrew Ali. It's been fantastic talking to you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you very much. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show on any of your favorite podcast vendors. That may be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of the rest. Don't forget to rate us on your platform. It helps others find the show. Or you can just listen or download on our website, www.ideasontrap.com. Thank you.